What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. What makes a good horror movie jump scare? Perhaps one criterion is that it still manages to freak you out no matter how many times you've seen it. That and it also had to ruin your childhood. You may recognize those shrieks and screams from 1979's Alien. This week on the show, we will share our top five jump scares. Plus, we start our African cinema marathon with 1958's Cairo Station. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Josh, I don't know about you, but the multiplex anyway still feels a little bit like we're living in a Barbenheimer world. I mean, I feel left out because I've only seen each movie once. And here, yeah. everyone else seems to have done their second visit, which I'd, I'd love to do at some point. But yeah, people can't get enough. And next time, we both vow to go in costume. Later in the show, we're still going to talk about a couple of movies that you know, they could be playing alongside Barbie and Oppenheimer this weekend. You can recommend Talk to Me, the new A24 horror film from the Australian directing duo Michael and Danny Philippou. And I caught up with a movie that has zero spirits being conjured using an embalmed hand, <laughs> Irisac's Parasite Passages, which stars Germany's Franz Rogowski, France's Adele Xarkoupoulos, and Brit Ben Wisha. I think we should list nationalities before every <laughs> Why not? Yeah. <laughs> We also have a new deeply flawed film spotting poll, which asks you to identify the best 90s action film adversaries. I think we have a good definition of 90s. We know what <laughs> adversaries are. I think we even have the film part down. Not so much on the action, though. I cannot wait to see where this poll ended up because there was so much back and forth on Twitter and on Slack. I just stayed out of the fray. I yeah. saw I saw it was ballooning. You treated it like film spotting madness. I saw it was ballooning fairly early on and thought, I'm just going to wait till it gets onto the show, whatever form it gets on, and I'll be happy to weigh in there. Smart. It is top five time here, and our inspiration for this list, top five jump scares. As we're recording, it is officially launch day, release day of your second book, Fear not. First, Josh, how's the day going? Are you energized by the release? I am. Tons of support from people on social, which is always exciting. And a lot of film spotting listeners, a lot of familiar names among that group as well. So yes, but I was just telling you before we hit record, it was also a day filled with car repairs, um, kids dentist visits. There was a, you know, a bit of a dog follow up with the vet. So just, just living that, you know, bestseller life, Adam is what mm -hmm. I was doing today. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, we need to urge film spotting listeners to buy more copies of the book so you can afford to hire people to yes, do all that people. menial I needed, labor for you. Today I needed, oh, I forgot there were, there were people, Adam, painting in the house in my mm -hmm. home office. So I added that as well. Uh, it was it was a fun day. Overall, I'm a little exhausted, getting energized now to talk about jump scares. That will be fun. But yeah, it was a whirlwind day for me, but I do appreciate, especially from listeners, all that support out there for the book. 
I do have a quick question for you. The full title of the book is Fear Not, A Christian Appreciation of Horror Movies, Not Horror Films. So at what point did you decide that this wasn't a serious cinema book? Haha. Interestingly, it was <laughs> spurred story. partly by a production meeting that we had. This was a while back, maybe yeah. the summer, last <laughs> summer. And we were talking about episode titles, just trying to figure out what is the best episode title to use. And I think you had done a little research talking about the difference between films and movies in terms of search engines. I mean, the, this is the engine. world we yeah. live in, right? Do, do I choose to sound snotty or, or do I allow more people to find my book? Well, I, went, I went with the latter, I'm afraid. Well, I'll take care of sounding snotty here Great. on the show. <laughs> in all seriousness, even though you've talked about this book a little bit here on the show as it's been in production and even as you were just sort of launching into the writing process, our listeners have been aware of this endeavor, but I'd love for you to give a little bit more information about what exactly it means to pen a Christian appreciation of horror movies. What really did you hope to accomplish with this book? Yeah, it's essentially, you know, I've been describing it as a work of theological film criticism. So you can think about all the other types of film criticism there is out there, feminist film criticism, um, different theories you can apply to film. So this is taking a theological approach, and it was actually something of a commission project from the folks at Fuller Theological Seminary. They have a great monograph series of books, A Real Spirituality, and it is, as a whole, just helping to educate people to think theologically about film who are interested in doing that. And some of the people I knew there said they always had in mind doing one on horror because it's this common question, should Christians watch horror? I get it a lot. They've seen it and students, you know, bring that question with them from homes where maybe they were raised and this was completely off limits. And now they're asking about exploring this genre. So they wanted to fill that gap and they knew that I had an affinity for horror. They knew, you know, about my first book, Movies Are Prayers. And so we decided what would be a good way to tackle this project and came upon the structure of dividing the book into subgenres. So horror subgenres, and then exploring how each subgenre, I argue, tends to examine a particular fear. I'll get into some of these in my list of jump scares. I did try to use that as a structure here as well. So there's a particular fear being explored in, say, a creature feature. And then what I did is in each chapter, I survey a number of films in that subgenre from a theological perspective. So I'm reflecting both on the films and the fear, tying it all back to where we find that fear in the Bible and scriptural examples, and really exploring how there's a lot of affinity between the fear you see in the Bible resonates with the Christian experience and that some of these horror movies are also considering, even though, you know, the vast majority of the time that wasn't the intention of the films, right? So that's where you got to be careful. It's, it's tricky. You got to respect the films, meet them where they're at, and then apply that lens to it, work with the text and say, here's what I saw in the film itself that echoes with this theological interpretation. So it's a bit of a puzzle piece project. That was exceedingly fun to put together. Not every movie I examined panned out, but when they do, it's really exciting when they do work. Tell our audience where they can learn more. 
Yeah, you can find it at the big place for sure. But if you like to support local bookstores, there's a great online shop, Bookshop, that does that as well. The publisher is Whipf and Stock, W-I-P-F and Stock, and they have it on their website too. So any of those places would have it. And I have been asked this, so I will say I'm hoping to pull off an audiobook version in maybe the next two months, hopefully before Halloween. That's a little bit up in the air, so I can't promise it, but especially doing the show, doing other podcasts, it's something you get asked is, aren't you going to just narrate it? And yes, I'd love to. That's a little bit of a um, complicated process, so I'm going through that right now and hope to pull that off. But the book is out there right now. You can get that for sure. If only you had the audio equipment to pull that off. <laughs> I've got I've got that box checkmarked. I was honored to be asked to provide a blurb for the book, so it's there on the cover. I know that's really gonna gonna move some copies of the yeah. book, Josh. Oh yeah, I do, I do thank you for that request, and I'm really hoping that you did pick five films here for your top five jump scares that are mentioned in the book, and you just copied and pasted what you already wrote, and you're gonna recite that to us. I mean, there's only one way you can juggle three and a half jobs at once, Adam. <laughs> Little tricks, get little tricks like that. Let's get into the top five. A top five that probably doesn't need to be set up that much because it's all right there in the title. Jump scares. All about abrupt change. The element of surprise. Yes, it's usually in conjunction with a loud sound. That sound could be music and or a combination of some other effects, natural or unnatural. I don't think you get into this in your book, Josh. It's not quite this highfalutin, but I went to Popular Science, its website, and they produced an article, I think back in 2021, talking about the effect on the brain, why jump scares mm. are so effective. I thought I would lead with this. Whether we're scared at a haunted house, in a dark street, or on the couch watching Jaws, our minds respond in a similar way. The amygdala, a key part of the brain that processes fear, lights up says David Zald, a psychologist at Vanderbilt University and director of the Effective Neuroscience Laboratory. That same region controls startle responses in your body, jumping, ducking, or making a scared or surprised expression. Once the amygdala is activated, it cues the hypothalamus, the hormone-controlling section of the brain, to release adrenaline and prepare our muscles for action. It's, it's cinema and it's science, Josh. I love that. Amygdala, is that what, is that what you're bringing here? Amygdala. Wow. That's great. And that breaks it down, right? I mean, that's the visceral response that these, and I think they're somewhat derided because of that, because there are ways to exploit that physiological response easily. And so sometimes people wave away jump scares as easy tricks. So I did in my list want to dig into some more interesting ways, the very trope of jump scare has been used mm -hmm. by some of the best horror filmmakers. Yeah, I think for these choices to make our lists, there had to be some real craft yes. behind it, not just a really good jump scare. Also, I'm sure we'll get into it. They had to actually scare the hell out of us. That at least <laughs> that applied, <laughs> that applied to me. And we heard in that paragraph a mention of Jaws. Lots of options you could go with from Jaws. In fact, there were two movies I thought of right away. And... Well, that's probably why those movies are in the film spotting pantheon, and they won't get a mention here except at the top. One of those is Jaws. And I might go with the Ben Gardner's boat scene, mm -hmm. finding Ben Gardner. <laughs> when we, we get to meet Ben Gardner, I don't like faces. There's going to be more on that in a minute, Josh. We're not going to avoid that. 
And yeah, David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. Yeah. The scare behind Winkies. You you watch that scene and surely are expecting it to happen, but also kind of can't believe it will happen. I mean, it's baked into the very scene itself and the writing of it that there's nothing to be afraid of. Let's just go out and look. Well, we go out and look and it turns out there's a lot to be afraid of. There's almost two different types of jump scares, the kind that get you because you had no idea and the kind that get you because you know and see something is coming, mm-hmm. but you're not exactly sure when. And both of them are pretty terrifying if used correctly. Okay. Well, bring it. Scare me. Josh. Okay. Give so me your number five. <laughs> my number five, I, I thought there might have been a chance that you were going to check out paranormal activity we had talked about this i don't think it happened but i anyways i did avoid the first paranormal activity because of that and instead went with a moment from paranormal activity two now this is probably i'm starting here at number five with something that's a little more standard in terms of a jump scare this paranormal activity two is a prequel actually it's a prequel to the 2009 film it involves a young family who's using security cameras to figure out what is behind these strange occurrences and noises going on in their house. The first few films in this series, you could you could kind of consider them a found footage variation on Poltergeist, basically. So I'm calling the jump scare that is my pick here, the kitchen burst. So this occurs, it's in the bright of day as the mother, played by Sprague Graydon, is sitting down at the kitchen counter just to enjoy a cup of tea. We're watching from the angle of one of those cameras, which is placed maybe above the kitchen cabinets, you know, in the corner of the room, looking down. And we notice that she pauses at one moment and then looks up. And then... All those cabinets explode open at once, and they send her just talk about the brain response, the body response. She just goes flying out of the room. But what I love is, again, it's built in the conceit, the framing, um, the very structure of these movies. The camera just stays there, right? So she flies out of the frame. The camera stays there. I think it does then cut to another camera in a different part of the house, sees her running up the stairs. But then this brilliant little touch. The tea kettle starts screaming. And so this means she's going to have to go back in there to turn it off. I guess she could just let it keep screaming. But uh-huh. think about those those primal visceral things this moment is playing with within you. If you make tea and have a kettle like that, it's just built in. As soon as you hear that, you've got to get in there as soon as you can to stop the screaming. But of course, that's the last place she wants to go. So I do love that element that they added. It's a very basic jump scare in some way, but just effective in the way so many of them are in the in the paranormal activity films. These cameras are always on. So it goes back to what you were saying about Mulholland Drive. We know it's only a matter of time before something, the way the, way the camera's moving in that scene in Mulholland Drive, we know it's only a matter of time before something happens and we're on pins and needles waiting for it. The, expect, the anticipation, the, the expectation is what's so excruciating. So, so yeah, in the book, In Fear Not, I write about the first paranormal activity, actually. So no cutting and pasting here, Adam. You're getting all original content. <laughs> Hope mm. you're enjoying it. But I write about it in the found footage horror chapter, and I write about that as exploring fear of the dark. But really what I mean is fear of what we don't know 
and how that existentially represents the limits of our knowledge. So think about how these movies, these found footage movies, are about characters trying to fill in those blanks with cameras of some kind should give us the answers, but they never do, do they? We're always lacking something. We can't see outside of the frame. The lights go off. And this is just one example of that in Paranormal Activity 2. Even with those cameras, uh, we we still don't know when the terror is exactly going to come. You said it. I think a big reason why I've avoided those movies, besides generally being a scaredy cat, is they are all about what's really happening in the dark. And I still don't particularly like the dark. I definitely didn't like it when I was a kid and when I was being forced to imagine all the things that were surely out there. The other reference you made there is to Poltergeist, and that movie scared me enough as a kid. I've always equated these films without even having seen them. Obviously, I've made a connection to Poltergeist, and there's a good honorable mention there for the clown scene in Poltergeist (laughs) is a good jump scare. Oh, I mean, that is, was that in our childhood scares? I think one of us had on our, it might have been. I mean, that was traumatizing. Absolutely. Yeah. Speaking of traumatizing, and I really <laughs> think this whole list could just be called <laughs> and then, because I think I have a few of those in my notes as well, but a little bit of setup here. If I was really going back to the OG, the original jump scare, the one that traumatized me the most and first, and I posted this on the Film Spotting Instagram the other day. Yes, Josh and I are both on Instagram at Film Spotting at Larson on Film. That does mean we're both also on Threads. Follow us there. Same names, Film Spotting and Blue Larson Sky. On Film. Have you done Blue Sky yet, Adam? Nope, not going there. Come on, threads, come aboard. Is, Why threads not? Is my platform. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to lean into it as much as I can for as long as it's around. But the music video for Michael Jackson's Thriller in 1983. Yeah should probably be considered for my list because it was at the time, and you can still call it this, of course, a short film. It was 14 minutes long. It was much more than just a music video. It's true. And it was directed by film director John Landis, who's going to get mentioned, I think, at least two more times in this top five. I know just on my list. And it's that moment when Michael's character is transforming and that horrible sound is taking place. He's down on the ground. He then suddenly looks up at his date with those yellow Yellow, eyes and says, go away. And I know I've told this story on the show before, but I have to tell it again because it so perfectly captures what a jump scare really can be and what it can do. I remember vividly my old house in Grinnell. The first time I'm watching that, I'm on the phone. I'm sitting on a desk my parents had in our basement. And this was a two-story home, you know, with that basement. I was I was in the bowels of the home. It was it was evening time. I'm talking to my friend Matt on the phone about who knows what and the thriller video comes on for the first time. It's fine. I'm watching it while I'm having a conversation. It gets to that moment. The adrenaline starts rushing so hard that I Just set the phone down. I don't even say anything. I just set the phone down and run upstairs to my parents. I never came back to the phone. I'm not sure I ever came back to the basement. You were like the mother in paranormal activity. You were out of there. Oh, it was shot out of a candle. Matt, Matt had no clue what was going on, but it really does nicely set the table here because as I said, the original jump scare, but also because it turns out scary face reveals 
are going to loom quite large for me, even, it turns out, in silly comedies that might star Pee Wee Herman, who we are going to get to pay a little tribute to now on the show, of course, having just sadly passed away at the age of 70. Yeah, my number five jump scare is Large Marge from Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Here's Scott architect of destruction Snyder. This was way pre-Oppenheimer. Sam gave Scott that nickname. He's in Lexington, North Carolina. My vote for best jump scare is the large Marge scene from Wee's Big Adventure. I saw this in the theater with my father and he knew exactly what was coming. And I cannot recall a time when he laughed so hard as when I freaked out at that scene. <laughs> then years later, I was able to recreate the same event with my son. Now, at first I read that and thought, Scott, you recreated Large Marge. That's why I thought he was going that way too. I really (laughs) want to know how you prepared all that. Of course, what he's really saying is he just sat there like a terrible father waiting to laugh at his son. Rite of passage. Sounds like a rite of passage to me. Yeah, apparently so. (laughs) But precisely because it's a silly comedy, your guard is completely down. You have no expectation that you're going to feel any kind of terror watching Pee Wee's Big Adventure. This is before we know who Tim Burton is as a filmmaker, because, of course, it's his first film, his feature debut. It's got that ominous Elfman score. It's got the setting, Pee-wee hitchhiking alone at night, that gray fog, and, of course, that slow, suspenseful voice of Alice Nunn. But, Josh, still, it's Pee-wee Herman. How bad can it be? And when they finally pulled the driver's body from the twisted, burning wreck, it looked like this. (laughs) It's even claymation for crying out loud. It really should not be scary. And yet, I absolutely remember jumping as a 10-year-old when I saw that for the first time. And it's because of the writing of of Paul Rubens and because of Phil Hartman and Michael Varhals, the other credited writer on it, Burton's direction, even with the ominous setup, if you will, you're still waiting for a punchline, not to feel like you've been punched in the stomach. And that's, that's exactly how I felt. How fun would it be? I don't think I saw it in the theater, even though it probably played in my hometown. I think I saw it on TV, probably on HBO after it came out. How fun would it be to have that experience that Scott did and actually see it presumably in a theater full of younger people and see everybody jump? Well, I don't know if I saw it in the theater myself, but I know this scene, the movie, but this scene in particular was lore in our household between me and my two younger sisters. They could not get enough of Large Marge. They're going to be angry that you took this pick instead of me, Adam, but I wanted to go more straight horror, so I was happy to let you have it. But man, they just love Large Marge. And speaking of that time growing up around then and Paul Rubens, who, you know, we want to give a nod to, as you said, creating this character and being instrumental in this film, I thought Pee Wee Herman was amazing. And I was in middle school at the time, and it was that age when Pee Wee's Playhouse would be on Saturday mornings. Did not miss an episode. And this, you know, would have been that age where you were kind of aging out of Saturday morning cartoons, but you were still, you know, sleeping over at friends' houses here and there. And that's what you did. And Pee Wee's Playhouse was in this weird netherworld of 
children's programming, but also there's an adult sensibility and definitely the humor going on there as well. And so it was this weird space of knowing that some people thought Pee Wee Herman's or Pee Wee's Playhouse was for kids, but a small group of, you know, strange kids when they got to school Monday morning, wanted to talk about what was on Pee-wee's Playhouse. And I was definitely in that latter group. Yeah, what? just what, uh, you know, really an iconic character. That's mm-hmm. an overused word. But I think the number of movies that, that he made and with that show and such a unique character, you can say that about Pee-wee Herman. I wouldn't sell my bike for all the money in the world. Not for a hundred billion million trillion dollars. Then you're crazy. I know you are, but what am I? You're a nerd. I know you are, but what am I? You're an idiot. I know you are, but what am I? 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 Infinity. No, I'm not. You are. All right, number four. Hitting the deer in Get Out. This is one that just comes smack right at you, right? No real setup at all. It's very early on in Jordan Peele's brilliant debut. You've got Chris and Rose played by Daniel Kaluuya and Alison Williams driving on that rural road, going to her parents' house when all of a sudden a deer leaps onto the road and they hit it. You're jealous. I'm not jealous. I'm really jealous. So on one level, this works as a bit of foreshadowing, of course, right? It's suggesting this is what's awaiting Chris, especially when he walks into the woods and and finds the deer laying there dead. But the main point of the scene, it strikes me, is when he gets back to the car and the cop has pulled up and he appears to be, as he starts talking to them, appears to be singling out Chris for questioning, which Rose intimates is because Chris is black. Uh, So you guys uh, coming up from the city? Yeah, yeah. My parents are from the Lake Ponico area. We're just heading up there for the weekend. Mm. Sir, can I see your license, please? Wait, why? Yeah, I have state ID. No, no, no. He wasn't driving. I didn't ask who was driving. I asked to see his ID. Yeah, why? That doesn't make any sense. Here. No, no, no. That you don't have to give him your ID because you haven't done anything wrong. Maybe baby is okay. So one of the subgenres I write about in Fear Not, I call it prophetic horror. And this would be the types of films that explore our fear of societal evil. So these are horror flicks that that offer social commentary of some kind, basically. And Get Out, as we know now, kicked off a fresh wave of such films. It was always a part of the horror genre, but we've really gotten a whole new wave of them since Get Out. And I do think you can see that here in this scene. The jump scare, it's not just there to make us jump, which it does. But then we're knocked off our bearings a little bit and already unsteady for that disturbing, insinuating encounter with the cops. So hitting the deer from Get Out, my number four. Here I am with my number four, Josh, going back to John Landis. I said he'd come up again. I'm going with another scary face reveal. I wonder if you've seen this one. We've never talked about this movie before. I don't think it's ever come up in the history of the show. But it is another scary face reveal. It's at night. It's on the road. It's driver and passenger, just like Large Marge with Pee Wee. And it comes from the epilogue to 1983's Twilight Zone, the movie. Oh, yeah, definitely. I definitely saw it around the time of its release, but have not since. This is one of those when I saw the clip was like, oh, I've been here. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's it's the opposite, really, to the Large Marge scenario, because that's a kid's movie. 
But as I said, the scene itself is basically a campfire ghost story. Here, it's a Twilight Zone movie, so you should be prepared for anything, even being scared. But it's the most mundane, everyday road trip scene. And the timing of it, the scene itself, the length, it's five minutes long, so it it kind of goes on. And the casting is so key, yes. I think, to that false sense of security. The driver is Albert Brooks. The passenger is Dan Aykroyd. I'm not going to call either of them bland, but they're comedians. They're affable. There's nothing inherently imposing or scary about either of them, despite all of Brooks's neuroses, right? And they're driving through what seems like kind of a Western setting. I don't recall getting outside the car very often, but we do sometimes see shots of the winding road. Looks like a little bit of a desert scenario. Pitch black, middle of the night, middle of nowhere. And you've got Brooks laboring to produce a scary moment in the car, shutting the lights off, talking about what they might run into or what might happen, it it isn't very effective or it's not having any impact on his passenger. Uh, <laughs> huh? Oh, more pebbles. Oh, my goodness. That looks like they're out permanently this time. <laughs> this is dangerous. No, it's the road straight. It's just kind of scary. Well, what is that up Something ahead? might come up Big, ahead. Of, yeah, right. squirrel. <laughs> Chicks love that. That's scary enough. I know. I like it. Hey. You like trivia? Yeah. Okay. Want to play TV theme songs? Sure. You want to play that? That then turns into TV theme songs. We've all been there. You're trying to pass the time. At least you're trying to pass the time before we all had phones with the entire history of music and podcasts and everything else at the ready. And they start talking about the Twilight Zone and their favorite episodes and the ones that really freaked them out. And then Aykroyd says it. You, you want to see something really scary? You bet. Really? Yeah. You bet. Okay. <laughs> it's almost childlike. It's so innocent. He means it insofar as there's no scenario where he actually believes that the passenger is going to scare him. And and the passenger, Ackroyd, even confirms the consent. I love that part. It's like, no, really. You really, you really, you're sure you want it. And it's sort of like a, you asked for it scenario mm-hmm. and he tells him to pull over. Now I will say here, I'm enough of a scaredy cat that I'd be Brooks probably in this scenario right up until the time the passenger says pull over. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'd be like, you know what? I'll pass. <laughs> let's, let's save it for tomorrow or when we get to the motel or wherever we're going. But he does pull over and Landis does something really subtle, but really effective with the camera here, because it's been a very traditional kind of car two shot setup, shot, reverse shot between the two participants. And it doesn't shift. As I said, it's subtle. It's not a a dramatic thing at all. But in that moment, when Brooks turns to him and says, okay, scare me. The camera is now at a, a different angle. It's more aligned with where Aykroyd is, almost from his point of view. So he's he's looking more towards the camera. And it it just shifts the tension in the scene a little bit right before the real scary moment happens. And the other funny part here, the thing that Aykroyd does, is that little hand gesture as he turns. He does this goofy hand gesture, almost like 
a really terrible magician who's about to pull a rabbit out of his hat and he's trying to he's trying to tease the kids into thinking he's got something really wondrous that's about to happen it just kind of cracks me up and here it is and then <laughs> are you ready okay go ahead what are you doing that face that that sound i don't even know what he's supposed to have transformed into right that's what i was just, just thinking is it a werewolf is it's it some kind of monster it's sort of half werewolf half yeah. vampire it's like landis wants to compile all of your worst <laughs> right. fears into one creature it's got those scary eyes it's got those really sharp teeth and it goes in and devours <laughs> the driver i I think I've successfully repressed what watching that did to me at eight years old. I must have, too, because it wasn't until watching it again, as I said, that I realized that was one I actually have seen. All right. My number three. Well, I think one of the richest horror subgenres is what I'm going to call the sex and death subgenre. And the fear there is pretty obvious. This is what I write about in Fear Not. It's it's the fear of sexuality. I actually make the argument that the Bible's probably more sex positive than the horror genre. I know that doesn't seem <laughs> what you would think at first glance, but think about all of the sex and death movies we got in the 80s where that's what it equated. You have sex, you're going to die. You're going to get punished. Halloween, Friday the 13th, others like that. But it really goes back further than that. So I'm going to go back for my number three pick to 1942 for this one, a sex and death classic, the original Cat People from producer Val Luton and director Jacques Tournaire. This is the story of a Serbian immigrant named Irena. She's played by Simone Simon, and she turns into a panther if she gets too aroused. You know, this is dangerous stuff, Adam. There is another woman in the film, Alice, played by Jane Randolph, and won't get too much in the plot. I'll just say she's something of a romantic rival to Irena. So some of these passions are being inflamed um, by their relationship. My jump scare comes from this scene at night where Irena is following Alice without her knowing it down this deserted street. And the camera cuts back and forth, as you might expect between the two of them, a couple of times, and then it settles on Alice. And so we begin to wonder, okay, where's Irena? What's happened to her? Has she given up? Has she transformed? Is she ahead of her now? We're just watching Alice. And then after a bit, Alice slows down. Something causes her to look behind her. Camera cuts there. We don't see anything. Just shadows. There's a tunnel. And she picks up her pace in a panic. And we think, okay, here it comes. This is, all the pieces are coming into place. Here is the attack. It's imminent. And then a bus bursts into frame right. So it's right in front of Alice, not behind her. Totally not from where we were expecting. It's a jump scare, but then also allows for this comic exchange. Climb on, sister. Are you riding with me or ain't you? You look as if you'd seen a ghost. Did you see it? So a nice little bit of deflation there, uh, especially for those of us who have been rattled by by the moment. Now we get to chuckle as well. A lot of times laughter follows jump scares, right? So that's definitely what you get here. That's uh, 1942's Cat People, The Bus Scare, my number three. A sad, sad blind spot for me, Josh. Even more reason now for me to finally catch up with Cat People. I'm going to go 
at number three with a movie that I know for sure we've both seen because we rightfully gave it the sacred cow treatment not too many months ago. And I'll say the title and I'll let listeners start to fill in the blanks of which scene they might choose as their favorite jump scare. The movie is Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho from 1960. So many good options. Where do you go? Pulling the shower curtain. Mother killing Arbogast on the stairs. I mean, of course, these scenes, the two I just mentioned, are two of the all-time great horror sequences, period, if you look at the totality of the sequences. But you can take just those individual moments where mother bursts out of the room, where that shower curtain is pulled back, and certainly look at them as pure jump scares. But for me, the one that still gave me chills Rewatching it last freaking year or whatever it was, was near the end, the basement meeting the real Mrs. Bates. Lila and Sam are looking for clues in the Bates house. Lila sees that Norman's approaching. He's going to come inside and she goes to hide in the basement. And of course, that allows her to do a little bit more exploring. One door leads to another. We're inside. A nice old woman is sitting in a rocker facing the wall. As she's they do. Still, she's quite still, Josh, as they are. <laughs> Vera Miles here is Lila. She turns the nice old woman around. Mrs. Bates. The rotted out skeleton of Mrs. Bates. Here's the beauty of it. That moment produces, or at least it produced in me, a jump scare without using any conventional jump scare tactics. It's really not one by definition. It's, it's not sudden. She turns very slowly. Miles has a very delayed reaction to it. The Herman score holds the same note until fully after the turn. So there's really nothing abrupt about the music or anything happening to jar you. And that's because Hitchcock has just been setting us up the whole time. The real jarring sound, the jump, is Miles' reaction, the scream, and then hitting the light bulb. Yes. But, but no, we're not done. Just as we've started in that bit of hesitation pre-scream and pre-light bulb crash, we're starting to process the truth. The piercing strings start, and Norman appears in the doorway as mother with the knife, ready to pounce. If you watch it and re-watch it a few times like I did today on YouTube, don't be like me and accidentally pause it on Norman's face just as he's about to enter the doorway. I'm going to be having nightmares for weeks just from that, Josh. But it, as I said... Gave me chills a few months ago. It gave me chills today, watching it in broad daylight on repeat on YouTube. And another reaction I had to it that didn't occur to me the previous times I've seen it, including back when we had our discussion about it, the way Hitchcock uses that light bulb, so effective just in that, in that moment to kind of act as the mechanism for the jump scare. But even when the scene starts, one of the things I rewound today is when she's moving towards, and we're seeing it sort of from Vera Miles's point of view, she's moving towards the chair. 
it looks for a second almost like on a small screen anyway, like there's this giant orb on the wall. Yeah. Like that the mom is looking at. And it's not, of course. It's the light bulb that's actually hanging from the ceiling and it's it's so large there in the frame. And then we see it again now in the reverse shot just after the reveal happens. And of course we we get the slap and it it breaks, but it's Hitchcock using everything within the frame to great effect, just like he uses the shower head and the drain and cuts away to those and those just heighten the terror somehow. We get that with the bulb swing. It's a similar effect even the sort of aftermath idea, like the blood going down that drain. But I also was watching it going, is this Hitchcock? And I wouldn't put it past him, of course. Nobody would. Is this Hitchcock also being a little bit cheeky with us, where it's it's a light bulb going off, literally and figuratively? It's the reveal. It's it's finally putting it together. We're finally seeing the truth. So he decides to to make a light bulb the central part of the scene. Totally possible. Yeah. No, I love the use of the light bulb. It, it is. It's one of the three elements, right? So you're getting a triple layer you jump are. scare in this in this scene. Yeah, I. Um, where do you go with Hitchcock in general, let alone Psycho? I did know that you were going to go with Psycho. And so I thought I'd choose another Hitchcock film, probably from Psycho. Personally, I would have gone with this was my when we did our um, top five childhood movie scares, the stabbing on the stairs. Mm-hmm. was the one it was my number two that's the one i still haven't recovered from which i think counts as a jump scare so that would be my pick from psycho but not going that direction i'm going to go with perching on the playground from the birds the birds is a movie that's not often discussed i mean i think people like it but among hitchcock's greatest and every time i rewatch it i enjoy it more and more this is not You know, we talk just as Psycho has that triple layer scare, jump scare. This is not a traditional, simplistic jump scare at all. It's a feat of composition. It's a feat of editing, slowly building tension, all the stuff we were just discussing. Uh, And then it builds to something that for me is just an uncommonly sophisticated jump scare. So it takes place. Well, before the birds begin their all-out assault, everything hasn't gone completely haywire, but it's getting dangerous. There there have been incidents, let's just say. And you have Tippi Hedren's Melanie Daniels sitting on a bench outside a schoolhouse. Behind her, you see the playground. And at first, a single crow lands on the jungle gym behind her. We get a cut to a closer shot of Melanie. We just see Melanie lighting a cigarette, so no playground in the background in this frame. The next shot is of the jungle gym itself. Now it's got four birds on it. Back and forth we go from Melanie to the playground. Each time a few more birds, you're kind of chuckling at this point, right? And wondering how far is Hitchcock going to take this? Well, then we eventually get this point of view shot from Melanie's perspective, totally new. She's looking up at the sky and she's seen this lone crow just flapping in the sky, you know, not too threatening. It's just one bird. It's less than the birds that had been gathering. So maybe we're, we can start to feel reassured now. Okay. Things are all right, but where does the camera follow the crow to land on the playground where they now number in the hundreds. <laughs> that right there is your jump scare. Again, we know what's coming because of the way the sequence has been building, but we're still not prepared for how many crows are going to be there. It's, you know, you said Hitchcock is cheeky. So right. This is a punchline and a shock all at once. So in, in Fear Not, I put the birds in the creature features category, which was so fun 
to write about. I basically talk about these movies exploring our fear of nature run amok. We see it in something like Jaws. We see it here in The Birds. And here, it's just a brilliant demonstration of a distorted form of nature literally taking over man-made structures, this playground set, this, this attempt by humanity to build something for ourselves. And no, here is the birds taking it back over. So that's that's my number two. Very well argued, Josh. Counterpoint, birds aren't scary. You got to watch the birds again. That's <laughs> why do. they're scary. I do, actually. That is why they're scary. I actually write about this is, you know... To stay away from sharks, alligators, snakes, spiders, all that stuff is dangerous. But you're right. Birds, they should be fine, right? And that is the assumption that the movie, I think, pretty brilliantly pecks away at. Well done with the play on words there. And it is true. I need to see the birds again. I don't think I've seen it since I watched it for the first time in 10th grade. I had a I had an English teacher who made us watch the birds. Wow. Lucky God you. It is yeah. it is He's one great, you have to get. Teacher. You've got to get past that initial viewing because you do have that response. Like, come on, this is these birds are really that threatening. But once you watch it a single time, go back to it and you can see how well it's actually working. All right, we're ready for my number two movie jump scare. And it is one of the first that came to mind for me for this list. And That was apparently the case for many, many folks who wrote in. I'm going to share some of their comments here. Michael Phillips on Twitter, and I am withholding the the movie and scene here for a second. Michael Phillips, our colleague, who's going to be on the show here in a couple of weeks, said this was the greatest scream I ever heard in a theater, and this was before jump scares were common or predictable. Here's Bruce from Portland. I've jumped exactly three times in my history of movie going. When I saw Jaws at a sold-out matinee at Ford City, my neighbor who came with us jumped and cried out with pain, which startled me into jumping myself. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) During that moment, here it is, when Ben Gardner appears through the hole in his boat, the person in front of him had slammed the reclining seat into his knee. (laughs) When I went to see a sold-out showing, here's the second one, of the Blair Witch Project, your beloved Blair Witch, Josh. Mm. Some theater employees banged on the doors at the same moment the witch banged on the table. Oh, no. I mean, that's unforgivable. Oh, no. (laughs) There was a wave of weightlessness through the audience. And here's the last one. When the hand emerged from the grave in Carrie, the teenage girl behind me let out an ear-piercing scream. I jumped in response to that scream. All of these required the movie-going experience in addition to the movie itself. And finally, here's Steve Matthews in Rockville, Maryland. How about the very end of Brian De Palma's Carrie? I saw this in the theater during its first week. You know the metaphorical people came up out of their seats? I could sense every head around me literally rising about 12 inches at that moment. That's definitely my pick. And here's another one where we should know. We should really know. We're not we're not being lulled into something maybe like we are a little bit with Large Marge or the Twilight Zone. Everything about this sequence seems off. The mom talking on the phone post Carrie's apocalyptic blaze and her death and Amy Irving Sue seems to be recovering quite nicely, but there's this overly angelic glow to everything. The white dress, the picket fence. She's walking even in this dreamlike state, and there is enough glow. There's enough white haze. It's so prevalent, you almost can't see Amy Irving at all. It's that distracting. And there's a strange howling wind sound. 
Pino Dinaggio, his score is so light and soothing. You can't imagine a more soothing sound. It's all so over the top and otherworldly that it's comical. And I mentioned that she's walking in kind of this slow motion dream state. It seems like slow motion. I read today that De Palma, of course, someone who would certainly employ these kind of very ingenious tricks, he had Irving walk backwards and then ran the film in reverse mm. to heighten that that eerie sensation. And you can look and see. It's very brief. But just as she's finishing walking along that path, you can see a red car in the background moving in reverse. And yet, I'm not sure that watching it, I don't remember what it was like watching that for the first time, but I'm not sure we all accept that it is a dream right away, that this isn't some kind of reality because it is De Palma who is going to be that boldly stylistic, even with quote unquote real life scenarios. And maybe this is this, this moment of peace, not just for Sue, but for Carrie. It's an acknowledgement of her suffering. And this ending is going to honor that. And then just as Sue's hand after she's approached the, the gravestone, and she goes down there by the dirt and her hand reaches down to lay the flowers. That bloody hand shoots up from the dirt. And we're out of the dream like that. That's another jolt. We're out of the dream. Sue is in her bed crying and screaming. Her mother is trying to console her. Turns out everything we were hearing in the dream, well, it was just that. It's the dream scenario. It's not real. This trauma... The, the movie quite literally says here, this trauma is going to have a grip on her for quite a while. And I, I know that I jumped when I saw Carrie's hand for the first time at home. I did jump watching it on YouTube. Other scenes, I've mentioned it, they gave me some chills. The psycho scene gave me chills. This is the only one, Josh, where even though I knew it was coming, thank God no one else was around me when it happened. I, I jumped out of my seat a little bit. I was completely startled by it, and it may be about 20 years before I rewatch Carrie. You know what's so interesting about this scene, watching it again, it's it seems as if the dirt, you can see this dirt start moving hmm. before the music does that shift you're talking about. And I'm not sure if that's intentional or just a matter of trying to get that timing so precise, but I found something even more disturbing about the fact that the dirt moves. It's like a little hint, just a half second hint of yeah. what is about to come. That's actually going to be a nice transition into my number one here in a moment, but let's get yours. All right. My number one, I didn't mean for it to come from my favorite horror movie of all time, but thinking about the options, there's a good one here. I do think that's an ingenious playing with what on the surface seems like a standard jump scare. And this is the Freddy fake out from a nightmare on Elm Street. When we did our Sacred Cow review of this one, Adam, I talked about Wes Craven's melding of the real and the dream worlds and how that's one reason I think this slasher film is so rich. And it is this surreal merging of these states of consciousness that's at play that makes this jump scare sequence work. So we have at this point our heroine Nancy, played by Heather Langenkamp. She's pretty much on her own. And she's determined to pull killer Freddy Krueger from the dream world into the waking world. And so in this scene, she's wrestling with him, 
in her dream and her alarm goes off, wakes her up and her plan hasn't worked. She finds herself in bed all alone. So we think she's safe sitting up. She also thinks that not only has her plan failed, but she begins to doubt her own sanity. I'm crazy after all. Again, it functions as a traditional jump scare at Robert Englund's like, ah, it's like almost like your generic delivery of that sort of thing. But I really like how it has this complicated level at play going on here. Then we're thrown off. We're trying to figure out, have the rules changed here? What is going on? Why is he in the bedroom if she didn't have him there while they were wrestling? Uh, I think it's just great. I did put uh, Nightmare on Elm Street in my Slashers chapter, and there I suggest that they explore our fear of being alone. And I don't mean just physically alone, but a deep sense of loneliness. If you think about the victims, they're almost always alone when they die. The whole idea of the final girl comes into play here. And even the deserted landscapes, the lonely landscapes of movies like Halloween and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So it's a bit of a too complicated of a thesis to get in here, Adam. I won't, I won't hmm. make you, you sit have to buy through the it. Book. <laughs> yes. Let, I'll just say this. I do equate Johnny Depp falling asleep in A Nightmare on Elm Street with the disciples falling asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane. So As- yeah. As one would. (laughs) Get the book if you want to see if I pulled that off. But for this list, yeah, it's the Freddy fake out from A Nightmare on Elm Street. That's my number one. I knew it would be on here and I figured it would be high. My number one jump scare comes from a movie that is certainly horrifying in many ways, but may not commonly be classified as horror. And this filmmaker has given me some of the scariest scenes, including the one I'm going to mention of the past 25 years, despite the fact that I don't know that he's ever made a conventional horror film. I'm talking about David Fincher. I think I put Zodiac on my top five of the best 21st century horror movies. Got a little bit of grief for that, even though anybody listening would know that that basement scene and the killing that takes place along the beach are as scary as anything you'll ever see. I'm not going to relitigate that, Josh. I'm instead going to go to this scene from the movie I might still actually rate as my favorite Fincher. It's Seven, and it's Sloth. Good morning, sweetheart. Get up now, mother... Now! The detectives have entered this room expecting to find a body, and they do. There are air fresheners everywhere. John Doe, the serial killer, has led them to this next sin. Air fresheners everywhere. And you have all the performers in the scene recoiling from the stench. And I'm sure it smelled fine on set. I mean, I know Fincher likes verisimilitude. I doubt he actually made it smell awful. But still just watching people retch or react that way you take your cue from that and it is a visceral thing. So before we've even seen the body, you're just starting to imagine that scent and the rotting that must be going on in that space. They tear off the sheet and see the corpse, this horribly grotesque skeletal figure, deformed sores everywhere, pasty, just Gross, terrifyingly gross. And they proceed to have like a two minute conversation about it 
where they're looking at the Polaroids that have been left there and they're piecing together that for basically a year, this this body, this person has been tortured. And he's a drug dealer. We know that. We know he's a pedophile. He's someone that we should not have any sympathy for whatsoever. And the guy playing the SWAT leader, turns out John C. McGinley did not recognize him back in 1995, never knew it was him. He doesn't have any sympathy for him because just as he bends down over him, he whispers, You got what you deserved. <laughs> And this is where it ties back to what you were saying about Carrie and how if you're watching it now, maybe not the first time you saw it, you just saw the hand. You didn't notice the dirt. Well, I certainly never noticed this before watching it again and again today. But before he gasps, you see the Adam's apple go Mm -hmm. up and down. You see the breath that happens. But of course, that only adds to the terror a little bit too because you know that where – McGinley's head is positioned that he's not seeing that (laughs) you know we're as the audience seeing that before anybody else probably in the room is and that gasp happens and you just you can't imagine you never imagine that that figure that rotting body was still alive nor is there any world where you would want it to be for its sake or for yours and when he gasps it just completely (laughs) Did me in, Josh. And the way Fincher pulled that off, reading a little bit about it today, there was a 25th anniversary piece that was published by USA Today back in 2020. And he hired an actor who's five foot five. His name's Michael Reed McKay. He is usually hired in movies because the piece says he has this very slight appearance. At the time of the shoot, he was five five and weighed 96 pounds. And he knew. He knew that he had to be a corpse. His instruction was to remain entirely still until the big moment. And according to the piece, Freeman and Pitt probably knew, but McGinley didn't know that it wasn't a dummy. Oh, wow. So they did it multiple times with him obviously knowing that it was a dummy. But that first time, according to the piece... (laughs) Didn't know. And that's the reaction. You're getting the real reaction. doesn't matter if it's a movie that's being made. You can you can see that he would instinctively jump back the way he does. And I just think about that space. Oh, man, it gives me the shivers, Josh. I, I, I don't want to imagine. No one wants to imagine being near the room, much less in it, much less near the body. And then again, for it to be alive and moving. Mama Bates is in pristine condition. <laughs> Compared to sloth. She's, she's doing better off, that's for yes. sure. <laughs> yes. Those are our top five jump scares. I'm guessing you have a couple honorable mentions, Josh. Yeah, just a few that have not come up at all. It follows Tall Man. The mm-hmm. appearance of Tall Man is all I'm going to say. But It's good. Yikes. The Shining, this one goes back to my childhood, a traumatic one for me. Probably... I mean, there's maybe a couple you could pick, but I think it's that first appearance of the Grady twins that gets me every time. I didn't quite know if that 
count it as a jump scare. It might or not. not. It, it but feels. I can see the case for it. It, it emotionally and psychologically feels yes. like one when I think of of that image. Uh, maybe it's just coming to mind. I jump scare myself is what's happening each time. Yeah. And then one more I'll mention here comes from a more recent film, The Conjuring. There are a couple here as well. This is such an incredible use of classic scare tactics by director here, James Wan in The Conjuring. And maybe my favorite is the bedroom scene where we are so sure something is in that wardrobe. Everyone knows there's something in that wardrobe. Turns out, no, the wardrobe is empty. Don't look above it. (laughs) I still have not seen The Conjuring yet either, to no one's surprise. Here are two for me in honorable mentions, and they're great picks from listeners. Rob Morrison in Portland, Oregon. In An American Werewolf in London, here's Landis again. Jack has a nightmare where his family are slaughtered by monster Nazis. He wakes with a start and sees Alex at the foot of the bed. She asks if he had a nightmare, then goes to open the curtains and is butchered by a monster Nazi hiding behind them. David then really wakes up. I think I got about two feet of air when I saw this. The first time and Henrik Hansen and Maidstone Kent UK also submitted that pick and said, I remember seeing this in the cinema and saying out loud, that is so unfair. (laughs) The dream within a dream taking taking Carrie to another level. And here's this one from Jake Albrecht in Oakville, Connecticut. I think we all who have seen this movie remember where we were and how we reacted the first time we experience this as co-host of the podcast did i scare you the podcast that answers the only question that matters in horror film i feel especially well positioned to offer my opinion the greatest jump scare in film history happens in the 1999 japanese horror movie audition in the movie the film's protagonist holds a scam audition for a movie that doesn't exist to try to find a new wife his particular favorite is a woman who doesn't outwardly show anything wrong but gives off a vaguely menacing vibe after they meet for dinner he calls her at her apartment They have a conversation that lasts a couple of minutes. Her apartment is sparse except for a large bag sitting behind her. At the end of the conversation, the bag starts to move, and there's clearly a person inside of it struggling to get out. The first time I watched this movie, I didn't even realize the bag was there until it started moving. Can't wait to hear about other people's favorites. Love the show. Thank you, Jake, for that. The bag, Josh, from Audition. That's audition, all you gotta say. Audition, now it's spoiled for me. Believe it or not, that's one I have not seen. Oh. Only know the reputation, and I've heard of references to a bag. Now I know what it's all about. Well, it doesn't end there. Okay. okay. There's still there's still, there's <laughs> still a lot of movie to watch. Great, Josh. Those, again, are our top five jump scares. You can see all of our picks. I think you can watch all of our scenes, if you dare. At filmspotting.net. Our top five archive is there. Filmspotting.net slash lists. He's up. I'll do it. Cannot go for more than 90 seconds. Am I clear? What happens after 90 seconds? Don't want to stay. A bit there from the trailer for the new A24 horror film, Talk to Me, from the Australian brother directing duo, Michael and Danny Philippou. It is in theaters now. We are going to get your thoughts on that one in a minute, Josh, but we do have some poll results. A couple of weeks back in anticipation of this show, we posed this movie theater test. Imagine you're at a theater with four screens, all showing horror movies, not only here anticipating the show, but 
your book, Josh, and the various subgenres, even if they're not apples to apples here, if you walk into that movie theater and all you know about the films that are playing is the type of horror movie and that they're all rated R, which screen do you choose? Which movie do you walk into? Is it a movie featuring cults, a movie featuring ghosts, a movie featuring a home invasion, or, of course, my personal favorite, Demonic Possession? How did it come out? Demonic Possession is in last place, actually. 12% of the vote, followed by Home Invasion, 15%. Colts got 33%, but Ghosts took this poll with 39% of the vote. We do, before we get to some feedback, want to thank Fandango for sponsoring the show and for offering our listeners some discount codes. Give them $15 to spend, Josh, on movie tickets to whatever movie they would like to see. You can get those via Fandango.com or the Fandango app. We have four codes to give away right now. They're going to go to the four individuals whose poll feedback we're going to read right now. Let's start with Greg Baron-Mordo. As a person of no religion, I shouldn't find demonic possession as harrowing as I do, but I suppose it occupies the same niche in my brain as insanity. It's the prospect of losing control over oneself. Could be. Jeremy Laffery says, sad to see my vote, home invasion, getting obliterated in the poll here. I think this subgenre offers potentially the most surprising, even subversive strain of contemporary horror out there. Perhaps the realness this could really happen. And the echoes these films have of actual events, or so they sometimes claim, is why it's getting outvoted. But this realness is why I often love horror so much. Home invasion thrillers often play on the precarity of the false boundaries we build between ourselves and the world around us. Cult and demonic possession naturally tend to deal more with mystical, religious, and heavily emotive concepts and themes, but home invasion takes itself right to the viewer's bone. I don't know. I'll take the chance on getting another Funny Games, Hush, You're Next, or Inside over another The Conjuring slash Insidious slash Hereditary wannabe. Fair enough, Jeremy. We also heard from Bone Steel. I am a sucker for home invasion. I like the exploration of a space that comes with a movie set predominantly in one location, as well as the mystery as to why the home invasion is taking place. These strictures often give way to some pretty great variation within the subgenre. Bone Steel himself, the star of one of these horror movies. <laughs> Kevin Harris says, I'm not a big fan of cult movies. Luckily, I found a nice group of people who also aren't big fans of those movies. They all wear the same clothing, which is really convenient from a fashion perspective. And there's this cool guy who everyone really respects who organizes all our activities. I'm looking forward to our big weekend retreat. Sounds like it might go a little long, though, because they told me to make sure my affairs are in order before I leave. So considerate. Anyway, I'm not going to vote until I hear what Gorgameth's opinion is. <laughs> Have a nice day, Kevin says. Good luck with that, Kevin. Kevin Wish is you the best. Cheekier than Hitchcock there. Kevin, Jeremy, Greg, and Bone Steel, you all get some free movie tickets to get your Fandango code worth $15 toward a movie ticket purchase. Just send us a note, feedback at filmspotting.com. Net. Kevin's going to have to split that with uh, his whole crew there. It's going to get awkward. <laughs> That's true. It's not It's not going to go very far among all those fine people. Josh, now let's get to that horror release. One of the movies those winners could choose to spend their hard-earned money on. Talk to me. Yeah, this is uh, nasty. It's pretty clever. 
It has some of the, you could tell it's a feature debut in some ways in terms of the storytelling uh, brothers here, Danny and Michael Philippou, but they also have a lot of talent, especially with the camera. These possession scenes where these young people get together with this embalmed hand and try to bring spirits into themselves one at a time for like 90 seconds and film it. I love how they use 360-degree takes to capture what's unsettling about that, but also the excitement that these kids essentially are feeling about it. That's very much what this movie is about, is making poor decisions when you're young. These just have some particularly terrible, terrible consequences. So, yeah, I would recommend it if you're looking for something fresh and troubling and with a lot of talent behind it. It will be interesting to see what uh, what these two do next. Talk to Me is out in wide release. Love to hear your thoughts if you've seen it. Feedback at filmspotting.net. I would also definitely love to hear your thoughts if you get a chance to see a movie I caught up with, Josh, the new one from a director I've praised over the course of, I think, at least three films here on Film Spotting, Iris Sachs. His new one is Passages. Great cast with Franz Rogowski, who we know especially from a slew of recent Christian Petzold films, and Ben Wishaw and Adele Exarchopoulos. It's a love triangle movie, I suppose, though I don't know if you can still call it a love triangle when only one person among the three seems to get any benefit from any of the relationships here. And that that character is Rogowski's character, really the main character of the film. He's Tomas. He's married to Wishaw's Martin, but he does fall in love or lust with Exarchopoulos's Agatha. They actually meet early in the film. He goes home with her after they're out celebrating the completion of Tomas's latest film. He's a director and that's the beginning of the film that we get him shooting a few last scenes. This seems like a movie I should love, not only with that cast, but because I have been a fan of other sax films, especially Love is Strange. And it is about a filmmaker, more or less. That is his occupation anyway. But I have some reservations, Josh, about this one. And it really comes down to that Tomas character. And I suppose how much... How much leeway, how much rope I'm, I'm willing to give him. And he's, he's someone who takes all the rope when you give it to him. Rogowski's Tomas is a vampire, consumed only by his physical and emotional needs while sucking the life from those who have dared invite him in. I've been more seduced, though, by the wicked charms of many more nefarious screen bloodsuckers. Like, actual vampires I find more endearing and complex than Tomas. And maybe it's because we just came off of, of Oppenheimer that I was thinking about this. I could give Sachs and the film some more credit because I could imagine an experiment here where he said, I'm making a movie that is about a director, a creative artist. We've seen a lot of these types of characters on screen before and their personal lives are troubled and they wreak havoc in their relationships. But I'm going to give you one who might be a creative genius, but I'm not going to give you any real artistry to latch onto whatsoever. And I'm not going to make him redeeming in any way, shape or form. And you're really not going to have 
much empathy to really be drawn to or connect to. I'm going to give you someone who is the worst. And I say that because it's funny. I did have this very mixed reaction to it. And our friend Mitchell Beaupre from Letterboxd liked it considerably more, suggested I read Jacob Aller's review in Paste. And I suppose the good part, Josh, is when I read Jacob's take, and I'll link to it in our show notes, we saw the same movie. We saw the same movie. We just had a completely different experience with it. And Aller even says at one point, he is the worst. And another issue I had is that Exar Kupolis is someone who I found really marginalized in this film, found that character, Agatha, really marginalized in a way that didn't give her as a performer much to do and didn't make her remotely an equal part of this triangle. And there, Aller says that's intentional too. That's all by design that she's kind of the all caps, the other woman. So I feel like I got the movie, even if I just really did not connect with these characters and especially Tomas. But in these situations with filmmakers like Sachs, who I really respect, I do often wonder if it's, it's me who's the problem and not him. And maybe it's totally appropriate that a film built around such an exhausting character left me feeling deflated and wanting. I am definitely curious, as I said, for some reactions to that. Email us feedback at filmspotting.net. It's opening this weekend in New York and LA, and we'll expand to more cities after that. Quick heads up about next week on the show. We are going to continue our African cinema marathon with 1966's Black Girl. This is the debut feature from Senegal's Usman Samben. Beyond that, we're not sure. We have to discuss We are yet. not. We'll see what's going on, but we'll definitely have that marathon continuing. Then in two weeks, I will be joined by Michael Phillips of the Chicago Tribune. And we thought it's been 30 years since The Fugitive. Why not? Revisit that 1993 film, seven Oscar nominations, including Best Picture. It was a winner of the Best Supporting Actor Award for, can you remember who it was? Of course. Tommy, Tommy Lee, Lee Jones. Jones. Or I should have said, I don't care. <laughs> that, that would have been a good clue. So I don't think I've seen The Fugitive. Maybe I watched it again a year later or so, but it's certainly been at least 25 years since I've seen that one. So I'm eager to looking. Really? Yeah. Not even on TV because I don't I do haven't that. Seen it. I don't, I don't, I know you talk about the, you know, it comes on TV and, yeah. and you sit down and you, and get, you get caught. sucked in. I, I can't, I, it's the, it's the completest thing. I just can't, I got to start from the beginning. Oh, the fugitive for me is one of the all timers where I do it, remember it, if playing. it comes on, doesn't matter where, where it is in the film. I'm watching the rest of it. Yeah. And I do remember that was one that got so much play. On TV, absolutely. I'm a little miffed, actually, that I'm going to be gone this week and you and Michael are going to be up to this much fun without me. I mean, we'll we'll try to remember you in some way. Yeah, I'm sure. Looking ahead to that review, here is our deeply flawed poll question, maybe the most deeply flawed poll question we've ever had. Producer Sam <laughs> just getting out over his skis a little bit. Josh, it happens sometimes. After many iterations, this will all be news to you. Here's the question Sam arrived at. Are you ready? Who are your favorite 90s action movie 
adversaries. Wow. And, and yeah. boy, are there caveats. I can, <laughs> I can tell you that I saw the very first exchanges about this. It did not, it was not anything like this. No. It was something to do with 90s action movies. Yes. As I said, I saw things were going off the rails. Would it be more helpful to just gently say, I, I think I think we're going off the rails here or just let yeah. it play out. Yeah, you got to let it play I out. Didn't, I don't want to take away the Sam's magic. fun. Yeah, that's I mean, part of the magic, if you yeah. will, of film spotting. I think I think Sam, if you're listening, and I know you are, I think what Josh <laughs> is saying is, hey, set up your own private Slack channel for this too. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. I, I just, I let it go. I just did, I did mm-hmm. see where things were headed. Hence, let me share the caveats. Yeah. To Do tie it. this in more directly with The Fugitive, all right, looks like we're not going to include 90s sci-fi action movies. So Sam's thinking here, no Matrix, no Terminator 2, no Total Recall. And sounds like we're also excluding sequels. So no Batman Returns, no Die Hard with a Vengeance. So again, think about the adversaries in the context of all these movies. Also, no Heat, no De Niro or Pacino. Sounds like consensus was they would win in a landslide let's let's take that out so with all of that here's what we've got your 90s action movie adversaries are harrison ford and tommy lee jones in the fugitive keanu reeves and patrick swayze in point break keanu again with dennis hopper in speed jean renault and gary oldman and leon the professional or clint eastwood and john malkovich in in the line of fire and just to, you know, sow more seeds of doubt in Sam's mind, we'll give you the option of other. You can write in and let us know. Yeah. Make him feel bad about all the ones he left out. Yes. 90s action movie fans may be saying adversaries and you're leaving out John Travolta and Nicolas Cage. They they take his face off. I've heard. Josh. I've heard. I think I've actually seen that. Yeah. But yeah. Sam Sam's going with face off is really sci-fi. That's the story he's going with, and <laughs> that's why they've been excluded. If you would like to write in with a comment on this poll and tell Sam how flawed he is for thinking that, you can. Though I wouldn't necessarily make a case for those two as belonging in the poll, just in terms of going up against some of the other competition. Looking at the list, I think it's a perfectly fine list. I, I like all of these sets of adversaries, but it's it's a pretty obvious vote for Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones for me. Oh, really? Okay. I thought you were going with point break. So, so the catch here is like the fugitive an option. I have not seen most of these in so many years. And so memory is fuzzy, but it seems to me that Reeves and Swayze have, there's the most juice in that adversarial relationship in my memory. If you're just focusing on that quotient, I know it's there with Ford and and Tommy Lee Jones, but there, maybe it's just that some of these others are kept apart more. Yeah. I was going to say that's the only relationship that's unique. Yeah. It it is unique because they have a love for each other that none of those other duos have. So I think I got, I think because of that, I got to go that way. Okay. We would love to hear your comments. We'd love to get your vote. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. Another giveaway here, Josh, some free stuff. We've got some digital codes to give away because there is a new set out pairing our beloved Rio Bravo with Elia Kazan's East of Eden. This bundle is available for the first time in 4K. 
What question, Josh, do we ask our listeners for a chance to win these two films? What question gives East of Eden and everyone involved in that film a chance against Sheriff John T. Chance? Dude, Stumpy, Feathers, My Rifle, My Pony, and Me. It's it's tough, but for a chance to win that movie bundle, all you have to do, send a note to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your subject line is Rio Bravo. And in the body of that email, tell us which one of these three performances you would save in an alternate universe version of Rio Bravo. You can only include one of these in another version of Rio Bravo. Is it Dean Martin's Dude? Is it Walter Brennan's Stumpy? Or Angie Dickinson's Feathers? Well, we know Michael Phillips would go for Stumpy. We do. So he's got Stumpy. Um, I I think it's got to be Dude. Yeah, I'm I'm going the opposite in that I think it's got to be Stumpy or Feathers, actually. Interesting. I, I, I like Martin, but I think you probably could have cast a fair number of Hollywood actors oh, wow. to play that role. Oh, wow. You you can't bring to the table what Walter Brennan. You just can't go out and get that. That is that is uniquely Brennan. And I think Dickinson is doing something similar there as Feathers in terms of being her own distinct presence. It's hmm. tough to argue. This is tough to like, go against like Andy Dean Dickinson. Martin slander to me. I don't know. I like Dean Martin well enough, but that's where I'm going. I'm going to say... I, I'm going to say Stumpy. There you go. Stumpy. For you, Michael Phillips. All right. And, you know, if you want to write in Ricky Nelson's Colorado or Ward Bond's Pat Wheeler, I mean, you could. Go for it. I suppose we won't argue with you. Again, email us. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Rio Bravo in the subject line. East of Eden and Rio Bravo, both available now in digital 4K. This week on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, they are doing a Barbie pairing. I knew they would have to go in this direction, was very eager to see their choice. And I think they landed with a good one, 2007's Enchanted with Amy Adams. Hopefully that'll give them to talk a little bit more about Barbie's qualities as a musical. I think that's been, you know, mentioned, but maybe not discussed as much as it should be. I think it's a really good musical when it goes in that direction. Your next Picture Show hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes of the next Picture Show post every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get more information at nextpictureshow.net. Enchanted is a good choice, though I'm a little surprised. I'm looking at the list on Letterboxd. Greta Gerwig's official Barbie watch list. This came from Gerwig's conversation with Mia Vicino of Trivia Spotting fame. 29 films that Gerwig says inspired Barbie. Yeah, I don't think Enchanted inspired her. That's fine. I'm sure it's a wonderfully rich pairing. I'm just saying I might have thought they would look at this list first, which includes movies not only like The Truman Show, Josh, and Your Beloved Rear Window, but... Of course, 2001 A Space Odyssey, The Red Shoes, My Beloved, All That Jazz. It's a really great list if you haven't seen it. Well, they're going their own direction. You can't blame them. They are. No, you can't. A quick reminder here to help us reach new listeners. It's been a little while since we've seen a positive comment and our egos are bruised. Josh, they're bruised. (laughs) Are you you okay? (laughs) I mean, you know, we're trying to reach new listeners. If you like the show, slinging a little praise our way isn't a bad idea. It will only take you a second. Go over there, give us that five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, maybe share some kind words about the show. And of course, you can also show your support for Film Spotting by becoming a member of the Film Spotting family. 
You get to listen early and ad-free. You get a weekly newsletter. You get our monthly bonus shows. Yes, we we did a Barbenheimer draft on our last show and on our last episode of Film Spotting. I mentioned that I was getting crushed in the voting. We we always want to know who won, who listeners think won the draft. All that's happened since more votes have come in, Josh, is Sam has actually widened his gap ahead of you. Oh, no. Well, winning. We, let's just draft. shut down the polls before this, I know. this gets more embarrassing. It was 46% to 41%. It's now 45 to 37 And I have gotten just slightly better. I oh. went from 13% to 17%. Well, that's something. I'm going to have to take that. Our August bonus show, we can't get into the details yet, partly because we're still figuring out what those details are, but also because we haven't shared this with the Film Spotting Advisory Board yet, that elite echelon of the Film Spotting family, and they need to hear this first. We've got some fun stuff coming with the Pantheon, and they're going to be involved in really shaping the future of the Film Spotting Pantheon, but our August bonus talk is going to revolve around the Pantheon. It's going to be fun. So this is your chance. You can still become a part of that advisory board. That's not a locked group. If you're a part of the film spotting family now, you could just jump into that other tier, or maybe this is motivation to become a member of the family. Go right to the top, straight to the film spotting advisory board. We'd love to have you there. All the details about those options for supporting us, you can find at filmspottingfamily.com. All aboard for another film spotting marathon, Josh. Here we are, the opening scene you just heard a little clip of 1958's Cairo Station, directed by Youssef Shaheen. It is the first film in our African cinema marathon for any newcomers out there. We have been doing these film spotting marathons since really almost the very beginning, since 2005, when it didn't take us long to realize we have a lot of blind spots. There's movies we need to see, and we kind of feel bad that we haven't seen. Let's get smarter about film. These marathons are a chance for us to hopefully all get smarter about film together. On average, we do two a year usually five or six films per marathon. Some are devoted to filmmakers, others to performers, some to genres, countries, or regions. Last fall, Josh, we brought four or five marathon options to our Film Spotting Advisory Board. We have quarterly Zoom meetings with that group. We hashed it all out and invited the board to vote for their favorites. Their favorites were the Sight and Sound Top 100 Blind Spots Marathon, which we completed a little while back, and now African Cinema. These are five films made between the 50s and the 2010s. I think we're closing the marathon, Josh, with a film from 2017, I Am Not a Witch, that reflects some of the best of the continent's cinematic output. And as we have noted, this is very much an intro for us, meant to be a survey of the films that are widely considered to be hallmarks of African cinema. We know that we are just scratching the surface. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Cairo Station director Youssef Shaheen's career, it spanned over 50 years. He made almost 40 features between 1950 to 2007. 
He died in 2008 at the age of 82. Now, before Cairo Station, Shaheen made studio genre films, action films, comedies, dramas. Among them, 1954's The Blazing Sun, that one notable for being Omar Sharif's debut. Cairo Station is something different. It deals with sexual obsession, social upheaval, and violence. All this not long after the 1952 Egyptian Revolution, which led to the overthrow of the monarchy. The plot, a physically challenged peddler, played by Shaheen himself, who sells newspapers at Cairo Station, becomes obsessed with Hind Rustam's Hanuma, a young woman who sells drinks at the station. She is in love with Farid Shaki's Abu Sera, a porter who's trying to unionize his fellow workers. Adam, what surprised you about this film? I'm guessing, like me, you knew little about it before you watched it, and I would say... 10 minutes, 15 minutes in, mm-hmm. I still knew little about it. I was quite surprised where this movie went. Yeah, you really don't know where it's going. Part of that is just the pace of it and the breadth of it, despite the fact that it all takes place within this one setting. Shaheen weaves characters and plot lines together as busily as the passengers who come and go from the title station. You've got, we've touched on a little of this, but you've got Abu Sarah and Hanuma's marriage. You've got that character, Kanawi, and his relationship with his father figure, Madbuli, his obsession, Kanawi's obsession with Hanuma. There's a serial killer on the loose, Josh. There is this fight for worker reform, for workers' rights, and possibly forming a union, and the management plotting against Abu Sarah. You've got this group that shows up at one point that is actively campaigning for women against marriage. And there's also a random couple that just appears now and again at the station, this kind of forbidden romance, maybe, that Kanawi pays particular attention to. I don't know. Did I leave anything out? Probably, because yeah. this is so stuffed. But I think the important point is how deftly I felt it was handled. It's not awkwardly jumping from one thing to another. It feels there's a lot of camera movement here. And I think that helps with giving us the feeling of Mm -hmm. being someone who has walked into this station. And as we pass through, we notice, oh, that seems to be a couple. I'm going to follow that thread. Where something's going on. And then what this guy's selling newspapers, he seems there's something a little unsettling about him. I wonder what, and then of course the movie gives us all what's going on. So we get to spend time with all of these narrative threads. It was, it was quite the achievement and began, I think I was thrown because I thought what we were going to get, not from anything I'd read, just the way the movie opens, focusing on Kanawe and his situation, sort of this neo-realist portrayal Mm -hmm. of a difficult life of Someone who appears to be, my impression was both mentally and physically challenged. Yes. And how he is bullied by the people in the station, but he does have this father figure. And I was kind of putting, placing it, you know, this is how you do when you're dealing with a cinema that's new to you entirely. I'm placing it within frameworks I know. So like Italian neorealism, somewhat the same time frame. Maybe we're getting something like this. But then you said it, serial killer. And and it gets really lurid. The character of Kanawe, played by Shaheen, as we've said, gets deeply disturbing. And the movie, that's one thing I want to ask your opinion of, you know, how sympathetic are we supposed to be towards this character? Because the movie seems to go back and forth. It doesn't shy away from close-ups of 
women's parts he's looking at mm-hmm. and then a close up of his eyes actually leering. But then we also, as I said, see him getting bullied and you realize that, you know, maybe I guess the question is how responsible for his actions is, is he, yeah. and yeah. that's just one piece of, that's, as you described yeah. a larger story. Yeah. And not only that, I'll get to that and I'll get to the sympathy question too in a moment, but just going back to the swirling nature of this story, you also have characters and motivations shifting rapidly within the story. One example I can think of Josh is later in the film when it looks like Abu Sarah could be possibly blamed for attempted murder the management decide, oh, we're going to run with that. Hey, this could solve our problem. We'll we'll go ahead and just kind of get him framed for murder. Yeah. It's like the film introduces these threads and then lets the characters pick them up and go with them. And sometimes they spin out into nothing and sometimes they turn into larger things. What, what surprised me about the film, to go back to the original question, is how this film is often connected to, in any blurb you see about it, it will tie it back to Italian neorealism. And certainly watching it, I got that sense. I understood why. Shaheen surely had to be inspired by it after making a lot of different types of films. The ones you listed, this movement in Italy is really taking root. And he makes here what is a really gritty film. And it's got an emphasis on everyday concerns and on working people. And it clearly takes conventional melodrama elements and merges it with a neorealism approach. But that's just part of it. Where it's, it it's like where a it, launching pad. Yeah, it, it departs sharply yes. from neorealism in the stylistic elements. This was the surprise for me. The stylistic elements it draws from film noir. Yeah. That's what this felt like to me way more than a neorealist picture. You see that in its style. You see it in its anxiety towards women. And really, the the calling card of noir for me, even more than the lighting, is the score. The score is, is this classic, almost film noir score. Very, very heightened and a little bombastic and, and eerie at times. But it's noir, and it's also this psychological thriller mm-hmm. long before I can think of many. I'm not saying it was the first. It certainly or almost certainly wasn't, but it, it's an early thriller that feels like it shares a lot of DNA with another film that was part of an early film spotting marathon, Michael Powell's Peeping Tom. Hmm. And the difference there is that at no point watching Peeping Tom, a movie I, I quite love, do I ever feel any real affinity or sympathy for that main character. And I do think because of our understanding of his condition, but also this larger society that he's part of, this markedly patriarchal society that gives men all this power and then says to this marginalized character, oh, but not for you. <laughs> that, that's not for you. And we, we see and, and feel his profound loneliness, despite how creepy let's say, to use a conventional term, a modern term, how creepy he seems to be. And I think it's really in the filmmaking. It's in the filmmaking, whether you want to feel that sympathy or not, you have the director playing that character, challenging us by drawing us in with some of these stylistic choices. And there's there's a key standout scene I'll mention that I think 
really aligns us with him, but I'll I'll give way for your thoughts on that. Well, one way it aligns us with him is to go back to your point about the score, the violin mm-hmm. we get under the sequences of Kanawe being bullied or someone dismissing him. Then we'll get this close-up of his face and hear that very sympathetic violin. So it's clearly intentional. I think the performance doesn't push that too hard. I think the performance is equally invested in the lecherous side and the downtrodden side. So I think that's to his credit in terms of what he's doing on the screen. Yeah, we're we're coming up with all of these touch points and it brings to mind a film from the same year, American film 1958 that is similarly a melting pot of genres and that's Orson Welles' Touch of Evil. You know, that's one that gets lurid also. It's set in this transitory place, you know, a, a border town and I can see, you know, there there are similar things going on where it's hard to pin down exactly what's happening. But this one, Cairo Station, definitely has more societal concerns. And I think that's what the movie wants us to ask is how sympathetic should we be for Kanawe or is society mostly responsible for his choices? But I do think he makes there's a breaking point. Where some sort of line does seem to be crossed and you, and you have to say, okay, no matter what the explanation is, things have gotten downright scary, terrifying, particularly for the women, which is one of the movie's concern. How vulnerable are the women in this scenario, this particular station? What places do they have and how exposed are they um, just to men passing by, but also to men eventually like Kanawe who have much darker designs on them? Yeah. And it's tough anytime we talk about this type of subject matter or these types of characters, no matter how sympathetic they might be for what Ever reasons you might be invested in their characters or whatever good traits they have. It's not as if I would ever suggest or the filmmaker, I believe, is ever suggesting that it's about approving of any of his actions or justifying any of his actions. As a piece of art, it's about putting you as a viewer, though, in that headspace and at least trying to make you understand. That's it. Understand and understand the the societal conditions that would go into that type of snap. And you're right, that snap is very blatant. And it's the key scene in the film for me in terms of really showcasing what Shaheen is clearly capable of as a filmmaker. And I do want to go back briefly and just mention, I don't think I said this, but when I mentioned Michael Powell, that's a film that came out in 1960. So that's a couple of years after Cairo Station, clearly not an influence that he was drawing on. I'm not sure if if Powell was influenced by Cairo Station at all or not, but we get a lot of close-ups here, Josh, like you mentioned, and a lot of POV shots where we we watch, in particular, after he has committed the crime that he's committed, but he's trying to pin it on someone else. We watch him watching, and we watch along with him, there's where the the voyeurism aspect comes in a little bit. And that does draw us in. And it it aligns us in a way with his disturbed mental state. And the use of shadows, too. Here's where it gets more noir-like the deeper we go into the film. The more depraved he becomes, the darker, literally, the film gets. And the more use of shadows we get. And, and that scene, the breaking scene, is one 
that directly ties together these competing, or they could be competing notions anyway, they should be, of sexuality and violence. It's where he is outside a door listening as Hanuma and Abu Sarah, who are a couple and are talking about getting away on a train tonight and getting married. She has just done something wrong. He goes in to confront her about it. Abu Sarah does and beats her. So Kanawi is, is listening outside as the woman he loves is first beaten by another man. And then they clearly have sex. It's entirely consensual, we should say, but they have sex. And in that moment, we cut from a shot where Hanuma is laying in some straw, clearly waiting for, wanting her man to embrace her. He stands very imposingly over the top of her. We don't see what happens next because there's there's a cut to the camera pushing in on Kanawi and he's holding a Coke bottle very tight, which is a, a reference to her, right? A symbol of her because she sells those at the station. He associates that with her. What follows is this cross-cutting, Josh, something again you would never see in a neorealist film. This cross-cutting between Kanawi's face and a train going by and he gets fixated on the track moving up and down under the weight of the train. And it all closes with, and it's still cross-cutting here, a tracking shot pulling away from Kanawi towards the train that also reveals, here's how busy this film can be at times, reveals the couple emerging from the room post-sexual act and a man who's selling newspapers yelling about a body being found, a mutilated woman's body being found in a trunk. They were just talking about her trunk, the trunk she'll need to get married and needs to be put on the train. This this all is intertwined in this moment. The violence, the sex, their, their pending marriage, the dismissal of Kanawi that happens in that moment too, because they actually say, have him go bring, have him go bring your trunk for you and put it on the train. And then the mention of the woman's body as well. That all leads to then the next shot. And what's the next shot? It's all these knives, a vendor who's selling knives. We don't even see the vendor yet in the shot. We just see the knives as, as this sort of reflection of what we imagine his psychological state to be. It, it's just great filmmaking. It, it conveys this man's deteriorating mental state and, and really does put us completely inside his head. Yeah. Yeah, it's an incredible sequence. And it makes use of one of the other things I admired in terms of the filmmaking is just the use of the camera within this space. It, it made mm-hmm. me realize something maybe that's probably obvious, but why so many movies are set in train stations, or at least so many good ones, is because you do have what, – what do you have here? You have this wide setting – vast spaces to play around with, but all, but also a constant sense of movement. Right. And so often this film is taking advantage of trains, as you just described in that one instance, moving, capturing our attention, but also symbolically doing something. I love how the camera moves parallel to trains so often. And then there are times where we're in a train car and it's moving up and down the aisle in a way, including a great shot 
with Hanuma dancing with, here's another thread going in this, is the the clash between the older generation and the younger generation, right? So there are these mm-hmm. kids who are bringing modern music onto the train and they're playing it and Hanuma is dancing. And I just want to make sure, you know, if anyone's listening to this and thinks that that character is a demure character because of what's happened to her so far, oh my goodness, Hind Rostam no. here is absolutely taking the screen by the throat. I think, what does someone say about her character at some point? She she has nine lives. Hanuma has nine lives, right? And I think that's how Rostam plays her. She is mm-hmm. just absolutely fearless despite having these strictures being placed yes, up on her on about her, right? what she can do as a woman. She, she is going to wear what she wants to wear. She's going to go where she wants to go. And uh, even in that relationship that she has with her fiance, Abu Sarah, it's, you know, she's in the driver's seat. And at the same time, she flips this. We see her being cruel to Kanawe, right? She mm-hmm. she teases him about, well, we're going to get married. Really, really, we should marry. Understanding that there's some confusion in his head about what that likely means, but yet she does it as well. So it's a, it's a ferocious performance. Cairo Station is currently available via Fandor on Amazon Prime. You can see it there for free. There is a seven-day trial available. It is also hanging out there on YouTube. It turns out we will put a link to it in our show notes and on our Marathons page. We'd love to hear your thoughts on Cairo Station. We know one longtime listener, Trivia Spotting's own Quizmaster Thomas Todd, loved this movie, said it's one of his all-time favorites now. That's how good he thought Cairo Station was. The marathon definitely is off to a rousing start. You can find the full lineup at filmspotting.net slash marathons. We do hope to get to the second film in the marathon, 1966's Black Girl, next week. That's available on the Criterion channel and also widely on VOD. Again, filmspotting.net slash marathons. And Josh, that's our show. If you want to continue the conversation, you can find us, well, on the splintered social media landscape. You can find us in a lot of places. Facebook, Twitter, Letterboxd, Instagram, Threads, Adam is Film Spotting. I'm Larson on Film. If you're trying Blue Sky out as well, I'm over there as Larson on Film. The current Film Spotting poll has us asking about 90s action movies, specifically 90s action movie adversaries. Michael Phillips and I will be revisiting 1993's The Fugitive here on the show in a couple of weeks. So vote for your favorite 90s action movie adversaries over at filmspotting.net. For show t-shirts or other merch, go to filmspotting.net slash shop. Film Spotting is listener supported. You can join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com for as little as five bucks a month. You can listen to the show early, ad-free, and you can get our weekly newsletter as well as access to monthly bonus shows. You can also get access to the complete Film Spotting archive. Want to mention again, our friend, longtime listener, Bill McLaughlin, who put together the definitive Film Spotting Guide to the Archives over on Letterboxd. You can search for it there or find it on our episodes page. If you're looking to see if we've ever talked about a movie, this just happened this week, Josh, where someone wrote in and said that they had just watched the Bob Odenkirk film, Nobody, and thought, I want to hear what Adam and Josh thought about that film. And they looked around and they couldn't find anything. Now, they couldn't find anything partly because, guess what? We didn't talk about Nobody. I didn't think so. Neither of us, I believe, have seen that movie. So, hasn't been discussed on the show. But you could find that out 
by going to the Letterboxd Film Spotting Guide. Just go. They're all in alphabetical order, and you click Read Notes, and it tells you every show, any top five that that's been mentioned in or a list. It really is an incredible and valuable resource. And you'll find in our archive many, many horror film mentions and top five. The second film spotting marathon ever was a horror marathon. Sam and I did that. We also have top five lists like High Concept Horror, episode 799, Horror Movie Performances, that's 736. You did that, Josh, with Tasha Robinson and Angelica Jade Bastien. Horror Debuts, 654, and our 21st Century Horror Movies, number 532. That really is just kind of scratching the surface of our horror talk here on the show. Again, filmspottingfamily.com. In limited release, you can see the new one from director Steve James. It's called A Compassionate Spy. A perfect tie-in, not by accident, Josh, with Oppenheimer. It's about the Manhattan Project physicist Ted Hall, who passed state secrets to the Soviet Union once he learned the truth about the weapon he was working on. I've actually seen A Compassionate Spy. Good stuff. Yeah, at last year's Chicago International Film Festival. Uh, that's I right. definitely think it's worth seeing, especially if you were a fan of Oppenheimer, as we both were. And I'll just say this. It's funny, I guess, how malleable, either how malleable my thoughts are and opinions are, or how powerful cinema is as a tool for understanding people's perspectives. Because I remember watching A Compassionate Spy and thinking, you know— I'm not a big guy for treason, but <laughs> I can understand why this guy did what he did. I certainly, I get it. You know, he, he didn't want the Russians to, to bomb us or anything, but he, he thought, this is clearer now having seen Oppenheimer, of course, he just thought, why aren't we sharing this information with our allies? Yeah, yeah, and it comes up in the be. film. Right. And then I go watch Oppenheimer and even though I can understand the perspective of people who are against the bomb, I'm still going, how could anybody sell out the country like that and commit treason and give secrets to the Russians? It Again, maybe, maybe that's just me, Josh. But if you want to see both sides of that, you can definitely get that with A Compassionate Spy. Dreamin' Wild is out. That's the new one from Love and Mercy director Bill Polad. True story of the Emerson family whose self-recorded 1979 pop punk album went uncelebrated until decades after its release. Casey Affleck's in that. Zoe Deschanel, Walton Goggins, Bo Bridges. I want to see this. I didn't know that this guy had another movie. Yeah, first I heard out. of it. Been a while. 2014 was Love and Mercy. Shortcomings is the feature directing debut from actor Randall Park. That's about a struggling filmmaker based in Berkeley. It stars After Yang's Justin H. Min. You can also see in limited release The Unknown Country. Well-received coming out of South by Southwest. It's the feature debut from director Marissa Maltz, and it stars Lily Gladstone as a grieving woman who takes an unexpected road trip. And if all of that more indie art house fair doesn't appeal to you, Josh, you can go to the multiplex and see Meg to the trench. If you'd like, there's always the Meg. Yeah. Next week we've mentioned it a couple times. Don't really know what we're going to do. I have an idea. I'm going to spring it on you and Sam on our next production meeting. Oh, so exciting. Maybe. Yeah. Tune in, be surprised what you're going to get next week on film spotting. Film Spotting is produced by Sam Van Hallgren. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. Special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. 
For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.